Hi, I'm Ryder Hask, and you're listening to the People's TV Podcast. You should ask the story how it wants to be communicated. If you're going to make a live action video for something, okay, well that means we're going to point a camera at something. What is really interesting or beautiful that we want to point a camera at? And if you don't have a good answer to that, then maybe live action video isn't the right choice for your story. If it's more of a conceptual thing, maybe animation is the way to go. That's Rob Shore. Rob is a director, and he's also spent nearly a decade developing and producing animated videos of all sorts. In this episode, Rob explains his approach to animation and what he's learned over the years after making dozens of animated videos. Whether you're looking for someone to make an animated video for you or you want to make one yourself, there's lots of information here that you could find useful. Thanks for listening. All right, Rob, thanks for talking with me. How are you doing these days? I'm doing all right. I consider myself fortunate in a number of ways. I decided to move out of the center of the city in order to get a little bit more space. A lot of my day-to-day life doesn't look that much different. I think we're all testing that hypothesis about introversion versus extroversion and that um, I pass the test as a truly introverted extrovert who does like being alone a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I'm so glad to hear that. So, Rob, I wanted to talk about your background in filmmaking and then also the work that you were doing at a, at a think tank where I know that you spent a lot of time developing visualizations for complicated data. I believe that was a company called Frameworks. Yeah, that's right. The Frameworks Institute, which is still up and running and I believe thriving in, in Washington, D.C., My background was in film and anthropology, and um, after sort of scrapping out, barely scrapping out, living in independent film production in Atlanta in the aughts, I got a call from a friend who had made his way up to a senior researcher position there, and he said that they were looking for someone who understood social science but also understood digital technology, and so I quietly raised my hand and and walked up to D.C. and uh, started off in an entry-level position and over the course of a couple years worked my way up to be the creative director there and um, it was a really cool organization I was like the only person on the staff or one of very few people on the staff without a PhD so it was anthropologists psychologists sociologists policy experts and we kind of attack problems social problems from an outcomes and policy basis so you know the problem is that our policies don't currently reflect the science of what yields positive outcomes in early childhood early childhood brain development. Okay, well, what does the real science say? Now we have that. Okay, what does the public understand? Okay, what would we need them to get, understand in order to start to put policies in place that would get that science injected in the policies? And we'd come up with hypotheses about what kind of stories we could tell that would bring the public in line. I mean, if you want to be perfectly honest about it, it's kind of the project of... Uh, evidence-based propaganda, but propaganda for really important and what I consider to be really good causes. And so my job became kind of translational. Uh, How do I speak with the smartest, you know, neuroscientist in the world, get him to explain the science to me until I understand it, and then package that into a story that could get the public to understand it and to start thinking, believing, uh, acting in ways that um, supported that understanding. 
Now I've come to a place uh, where I still use a lot of the, the kinds of thinking I was using there. And I always say that you should ask the story how it wants to be communicated. If you're going to make a live action video for something, okay, well that means we're going to point a camera at something. What is really interesting or beautiful that we want to point a camera at? And if you don't have a good answer to that, then maybe live action video isn't the right choice for your story. If it's more of a conceptual thing, maybe animation is the way to go. And so back in the Frameworks days, it tended to be the sort of like flat 2D explainer video, two to three minutes in length, um, which I still use a lot in my practice today and which I think is a very powerful tool. But as technology has improved and, and developed and my thinking about how to communicate and get things out in the world has also evolved, uh, we're, we're doing some more sophisticated things now than just that. Nice. Very cool. So about the decision process there to decide if a project is best for live action or best for some sort of animation or motion graphics, what would be your methodology for taking the client on that journey with you and deciding like what are the elements of the story here, how best to use animation, and then make them understand what you see in animation and how it can be used when in their minds they're just looking at concrete facts or data and then you taking that and putting it into some sort of creative, understandable, emotional format. Right. Uh, the first question is always, who is your audience and what do you want them to know or what do you want them to do when they're done with this? And that tells us a number of uh, interesting and important things. One, do we have a captive audience or are we trying to capture an audience? If you're like at a conference or something and you're making a video and you know you've got a room full of people who have to sit in those chairs and their technical sort of geeky experts on what you're talking about, that could push you in one way to saying, you know, these are people who are already invested. We just need to get them, you know, learned up on this new process that we have, or, you know, these developments in the science of this, uh, this issue or whatever it is. So that's kind of one, you can think of it like a flow chart. That's one way. If it's, we're trying to capture an audience, meaning that we have this story to tell and we're trying to get it out in the world broadly, then that, that puts my brain in a different way. That means we need to have what I call some, some Velveeta for the broccoli. You can't just tell the, the technical information. You can't assume a pre-existing knowledge base. You have to have some sort of narrative or entertainment content to what you're doing that people are going to get, make it all the way through the, the story you're telling. And we know, I mean, there's really great studies on what viewer retention and fall off rates look like and you don't have a very long to hook someone so even the most serious clients that I work with whether it's you know the environmental defense fund or the United States Postal Service you know I always tell them no matter what the deliverable is boring is not the right format <laughs> for for the delivery because you can you know have the best technical information in the world but if no one sees it who cares i mean i can't tell you after losing some of these battles how many videos i've made that just sit there and you know people pay good money for them and they sit there and languish with 50 100 a thousand views you have to kind of speak the language of people's brains and i think a lot of technical experts who are my clients forget that they are the best sources for trying to figure out what is it that people like, what is it that people watch. When they're not watching videos around their own subject, what does their consumption habit look like? And generally, 
I'm not a huge supporter of the military and uh, I'm allergic to dogs, but I can watch those uh, uh, military vets coming home to their pets videos all day long. Like, you know, <laughs> and it's because like, we're not all that special. We all kind of work in the same ways and the same kind of stories, which compel me probably compel you. So you have to find a way to fit the story you're telling within one of these well-worn structures that we know gets people to, you know, I always say there's, there's three things you want it to do, laugh, cringe, cry. And so, um, that's, the hard part for me is convincing serious minded clients that seriousness doesn't get you that far if you're trying to capture an audience. So that's the sort of the content part. The more difficult part, which has taken me longer to develop, is explaining a technical process of animation to my clients. I remember the first dozen times doing this, just getting so frustrated that we had a script, we did storyboards, we got to animation, we got to the end of the process, and then, you know, some creative director or something would weigh in and say, I think we actually need to change this part of the script, just a couple words. And I would just <laughs> throw my, my, my computer at the wall saying, that's so frustrating. Why doesn't that person understand that that means we have to re-render the entire animation, find a new transition point, re-record the voiceover, make sure that the music now loops in sync and ends in the right places. We have to basically undo the whole sweater. And eventually, in a sort of calmer, more mature mind, I thought, oh, why don't they know that? Because there's no reason they should know that. They've hired you as a technical expert to know that, and you haven't done your diligence of explaining that process to them. So that explanation has been, you know, even more than the creative parts of producing animation has been the biggest challenge and, and the longest journey for me. And that explanation exists in kind of like a client kickoff call where you say, we invest twice as much time in pre-production. And the reason why is by the time we start animating anything, I want us all to have seen the full animation in our mind's eye, in our heads, and to have seen the same animation to, and to all be really happy with it. Because when you start trying to figure it out on the timeline in After Effects or Maya or Cinema 4D or whatever you're using, that's when things really go off the rails. So the one part is in that sort of kickoff call, that conversation, and the other part is in contracts, where you have a very clear delineated scope of rounds of reviews with very detailed explanations of why if you wanna change the script in that last phase, it's gonna cost you more money because I never want to expand a scope of work with a client. It's, it's the worst thing that can happen. I, I, that's money I don't want because it means that a client is going to get a bad news email from me. Yeah, never want to send those types of emails. I totally understand that. Well, that's all really fascinating and I, I really like hearing about your process there. I think a lot of freelancers and other people could apply some of those methodologies. I'd like to hear a little bit about your use of animation tools as well as evolving the style and capabilities of animation along with the times. So when you first started making animations, directing animation projects, what were the tools like then? And what were animators able to do then? And you able to visualize then versus what animators can do now and what you can visualize now because of advancements in software and, and style? Yeah, great question. 
You know, when I started off, I think like the road to a lot of mixed media and 3D was just, you know, the render times involved and the clunkiness of the software was such that you needed, you know, like all of the talent had been pulled into, you know, major Hollywood production houses and it just wasn't, the, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Um, I didn't feel like I was empowered to do that stuff. Also with character animation, I mean, at the time, you know, if you wanted to make someone's mouth, a character's mouth move with spoken voiceover, you know, you were kind of moving keyframes and saying, you know, what does an L sound look like in a mouth? Can you see the teeth then? Can you see the tongue then? I mean, it was extremely laborious. And now as time has gone on, just, I mean, the sophistication and integration of tools, rigging is still a time intensive process. If you, you know, rigging is how you get a character to move, uh, where you get sort of pivot points in the elbow. And But there's so many plugins now where, um, you know, AI and machine learning uh, have given us ways to say, well, if the knuckle moves that way, then we know that the, you know, the rest of the hand is going to move that way. And so a lot of those things have been automated now. And so things that I never would have tried to do a couple of years ago are now at my fingertips. Also in the environment we're in now where, you know, you can't go out and point a camera at something in the world. Uh, a lot of us are trying to say, well, how can we take stock materials, things we've already shot or things that are taken from archival, uh, whatever service you use, and turn them into something that feels cohesive. You know, there's ways to search a lot of those stock archives where you can find multiple videos, different collections of videos that have a single actor in them. You can start to sort of cobble together a story out of it. There was a software tool that I, I was making a video for. You know, I found this woman who had been in 20 to 30 different stock videos. And I thought, you know, I could probably cobble some of these together and make it look like we shot this intentionally if I did some smart stuff to sort of cover our tracks with animation. And so we developed this really cool 3D, kind of like a digital wormhole wave thing that meant, was meant to represent the effect of this software technology. And I think we did a pretty good job. I'm not sure you'd know we were downloading 70 to $200 stock clips and then really investing our time and um, leaning into, you know, an animation treatment. That is so cool. I've actually seen that piece that you're talking about and I actually did not know that you didn't shoot that. So <laughs> I'm uh, very impressed to learn that because you're totally right. I mean, I was fully convinced that you did a shoot. That is a very cool technique, very good tip. So I know a lot of your role is communication and ideation, and a big part of that is your communications with the animator. So anybody who's actually clicking the keyboard and, and making the mouse move on After Effects project files. Tell me about that process and the steps that you take when you're not just choosing the right animator, but also doing all of these steps in pre-production with the animator's help to make sure that, as you said, you're on the same page with the client by the time you're actually doing the heavy lifting of animating. Yeah, there's just such specific style expertise. So it's it's good for me that I have a, a bench of a lot of um, different folks and you can sort of pick the right tool for the job. 
after sort of asking those client questions about what do we want to achieve here, you start getting into tone, you start deciding is this character based or not character based? Do we want this to have a, a sort of tactile, more, you know, shaky camera field? Or do we want this to be very sort of clean and be in a sort of seamless white world? And then you can start narrowing in on the kind of people that you know that can pull things off. And if you don't know, uh, folks who can pull that off, you can start looking through those, you know, Instagram websites, whatever, you know, assets you have online, click through Vimeo and well, who made this? Maybe they're available. Maybe like I can afford them. So first is sort of staffing that way. And then once you start working, I'll send along style references to the client and say, I'm thinking kind of the character look of this with this color palette, a detailed background, but that uh, the, the backgrounds are all static. I find it really important to loop your animator into those processes. I have gotten smarter about the way that I understand uh, animation and the way I talk about it, but I'm not an animator. I sadly can't draw. And a lot of times, if you are good about looping the animator into those conversations, they'll not only put red flags on things that uh, you might not see coming, but they'll come up with really good ideas that, that, that you won't have thought of because maybe you don't know about the new plugin that's available for this or you haven't seen the same uh, references as them. So I think the siloed approach uh, in the creative process here is no good that you should have check-ins across the process as you're going along. Yeah, I really support that use of the style references because finished work is just a, such a great way to illustrate to a client what it'll finally look like rather than in process process work that's missing the background or missing the character or some other element that confuses them. Right. You just have to be careful not to show them work and set expectations that you can't meet. Right? The animation houses that I respect the most, they're just dealing with budgets that I can never compete with. So some of the stuff that I like best, I have to bring forward to clients, but with here's what we can achieve and here's what we can't. Right. So are you able to, for the most part, rely entirely on those style references to get those pre-approvals before you start animation and take those into the animation process? Usually a creative brief or a treatment where I'll write my sort of paragraph understanding of what the untranslated story we're trying to tell is. Then I'll have a script to package that information in a way that uh, I think is most compelling for the audience that we're trying to reach. Beneath that I'll have style references, like what we discussed, and if the client says, yeah, this all seems like what I had in mind, what we'll do is create an original couple style frames. So just still, nothing moving yet, maybe three frames that show a key character, a key location, key objects. Then what we do usually is move towards uh, an animation sample and an animatic. Animatic being where I will record a scratch version of the voiceover, um, just my voice usually, for timing. Send that to the animator with a stock music track and then have them create still versions of each scene. You know, none of the, the things moving yet with one example of what motion will look like for five seconds or so. That way, uh, it's an incremental take where people can start to say, well, I didn't want the hairdryer to be to be orange. Okay, that's an easy fix, we can do that. And you know, I'm, I'm noticing that that character isn't blinking, that's distracting to me. Can we have that character blink? Well, you know, with again, the budget and scope that we contracted for here, it says that we don't have fine motor movements in our characters because that's something that takes more time. If you'd like to uh, invest in that sort of character detail, 
this is the time for us to decide that. So that's where that all comes along. And after you have the sign off on those still frames in the animatic with the motion sample, then you're generally in a good place to sort of start hitting the road running and making things come to life. But again, it's part of that process of saying, okay, we've all seen the final animation in our heads now, right? Now we're, now we're good to bring it to life. Yeah, that's so critical. I really love the use of animatics and style frames because even with live action, if you are making storyboards or, or getting a storyboard artist to draw something, putting that to music with voiceover, stringing it out in a video as like a comic book, it makes such a huge difference in a client's ability to really understand what they're going to get from not just a style perspective, but from pacing. And maybe they realize in that moment that they actually want a minor script change or something. So it's just a, a great opportunity for them to make changes before you get into things that are much more difficult to change down the line. Right. And it's a way of sort of, without having to be too passive aggressive about it, showing clients who may spend most of their time in sort of worlds of texts, writing white papers and, and web copy, video watching generally is kind of a passive experience, right? When you read something, you, it requires your, your action and agency to keep going. And so a lot of times things that worked well for them on the page in which they might've insisted for in the script, when you might've been pushing back that it was going to make the story too long and burdensome, once they have to sort of sit with it and they see that, oh, this should not be seven minutes, this should be two minutes. Um, it gives them sort of an embodied experience where they can, they can see the, the, the wisdom of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Uh, let's talk about remote workflows, because as you mentioned, often you're working with animators who are freelancers or, or independent contractors, probably working from their own home setups or home offices, or maybe they have offices, but separate from where you're at. I, I suppose that lends itself pretty seamlessly to the situation we're dealing with now. Has anything changed in terms of how you're doing workflows for these types of projects, or is it fairly similar now that we're all socially distanced? For me, it's relatively unchanged. You have to find a way to share the project files and the outcomes of those project files between people who are in different places. So that's always been a challenge and it's the same challenge that it was. It's amazing how much of the job is this translation role as a director of commercial animation projects. You're communicating in one language to the client about the final product and the idea, and then in a completely different language to the technicians and artists who are actually making the work. So you're really like that conduit connecting the artists to the final product. I think that's exactly it. And that's why I used that term, you know, translation before. That's what you're doing. I'm trying to understand the client need, communicate, translate and communicate that, that client need to a creative and sometimes very technical person, translate their process and needs back to the client and have all that be in service of translating this client's story to the audience that they intend. So yeah, you're, you are kind of necessarily uh, a pass-through uh, or, or a middleman, um, but that's not to say that that role is not without real, doesn't require real skill and, uh, and isn't important. No, absolutely. It's more than translation. Of course, you're adding your own creativity to that interpretation, but making sure that everybody from the technician on up to sometimes the CEOs or leaders of these companies are really on the same page with exactly what they're getting 
and how it's going to look and feel and, and be used. Exactly. Exactly. Couldn't have said it better. So I would love to hear any sort of advice that you have if you're talking to somebody who is thinking about getting into this business of making animation projects, whether that's on the side of the client or organization or, or company, or maybe it's someone who you know is kind of good at, at drawing or wants to get into animation. Do you have any tips for them just trying to better understand what they're getting into and how the world works? Yeah, you know, I would say in a time when um, beggars kind of can't be choosers about the kind of clients and the kind of stories they're taking, I think there's a great asset to being a geek. Things that, you know, some folks might consider boring. I just find it really interesting to, to dive into someone else's world for six weeks, eight weeks, and to try to figure out what's important about it, what's interesting about it, what's beautiful about it, you know, where, where are the diamonds in the rough in this person's story? You know, I just really enjoy that, that process of translation that we talked about. So to try to get yourself into a place to be a geek, um, and I guess, you know, the skills that you have aren't only useful in animation, you know, within the skill set that I do, I'm dealing with contracts a lot. I'm dealing with managing teams. I'm dealing with project management and timelines. I'm writing a lot, right? Those are all skills that have other translations that, um, you know, if filmmaking is, is off right now and purse strings are tightening for animation, um, what does the use of those skills look like? So that's what, you know, a, a lot of what I'm thinking about and a lot of um, the, the directions I'm going right now. Yeah, it's really foundational skills that, as you said, work for many different industries because they're just general work skills, like knowing how to communicate in, in, in a professional manner and, and be effective and be on timelines and be accountable and all those things are super universal. Thank you so much for your time, Rob. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you, Ryder. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to catch our next episode.